Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Fortress Information Security. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Joining us today is Justin Sherman of the Atlantic Council Think Tank, who is also a Wired Magazine contributor, who is one of the nation's thoughtful writers uh, on all things uh, cyber, uh, information, disinformation, misinformation, uh, and now uh, as well as Russia's uh, private military contractors. Justin, great to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, great to be here as always. Uh, And before we get started, our daily podcast is sponsored by Bell. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman supports our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our strategy coverage. Ultra Intelligence and Communications sponsors our command and control coverage. And we are a proud Farnborough International Airshow media partner. Uh, And our coverage of Britain's leading airshow was sponsored by Farnborough International uh, and Leonardo DRS. Justin, uh, great uh, again uh, to have you back on. A great series of pieces uh, on uh, Russia uh, and its sustained uh, information operations campaigns uh, against the United States and indeed are against our allies and partners. Um, why Russian uh, private military contractors uh, shouldn't just be thought of as a battlefield accessory in, uh, you know, whether it's Ukraine or or Mali or Libya, Syria and elsewhere in the world, but also are uh, increasingly sharpening their political warfare skills and indeed playing a bigger role, as well as in offensive cyber operations. Um, first, uh, this is a season of unsealed uh, documents, uh, and the Justice Department in early August unsealed an indictment against Alexander um, Ionov, uh, a Russian living in Moscow, but who had a very active career in the United States, spanning at least from 2014 to 2022, and if not longer than that. Uh, you wrote about it uh, uh, on the Council on uh, Foreign Relations website, uh, along with Gavin Wilde of the Carnegie Endowment, who was obviously the Russia director under Fiona Hill during the Trump administration. What happened in this incidence, instance, and why should we care about what Ionov was doing in the United States? And, and whether this is a tip of actually a far vaster iceberg that we might not be paying as much attention to as we need to. I think it is the tip of an iceberg or, you know, one part of a web or whatever our uh, mixed metaphor is here. But it's an interesting indictment. As you mentioned, it talks about a Russian national who for a number of years worked uh, with several political organizations in the United States to launder Russian narratives, to Uh, engage in actual protest activities. So there were uh, physical actions carried out uh, as a result. And this Russian national during this time was coordinating all of this activity with uh, the FSB, the Federal Security Service, uh, the KGB successor in Russia. And so uh, the the political groups uh, in the indictment are not actually named. They're left up for... uh, you know, sort of interpretation. You can go read what Gavin and I think they are, but um, you know, they were based respectively in Florida, Georgia, and California. And through this uh, individual who runs Ionov, who runs this uh, you know pro Kremlin quote unquote think tank in Moscow, um, these groups received foreign funding. They received ideas. They received literal propaganda posters. You had. Uh, You know, in one case in 2016, the Russians funding this U.S.-Florida political group to go around the U.S. uh, trying to promote a petition uh, that they had filed at this Russian's direction to the U.N. saying the U.S. is committing genocide uh, against or has committed genocide against African people. Um, You had, even after the war, 
uh, in Ukraine began. Uh, Ayanov directing uh, one of these political groups in the U.S. to go protest outside the headquarters of an unnamed social media company, uh, and Ayanov literally designed these posters that they held up. So um, it's really a wide range of activities, but again, speaking to the fact that influence operations are not just digital, there's also you know, a persistent human component. Uh, Justin, b- before we get any deeper in this, um, there are going to be some folks who are going to look at this and say, you know, I, 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 don't under- I don't see the connection between misinformation, disinformation, information, and cyber. I mean, I would even extend this to the electromagnetic spectrum, right? It's, it, that it's all conjoined. What's the link uh, from your perspective and the connection between the information environment and, and cyber and why it's particularly important for the cyber community to understand? It's a great question. These topics were never isolated, uh, and they're becoming more and more entangled than ever. Uh, When we're talking about cyber attacks against an infrastructure system, we can't talk about that without talking about the information in a phishing email. Uh, If we're talking about Russian influence campaigns, that includes human operatives. It also includes uh, stealing documents and then posting them online, for example. So all of this stuff is entangled. All of this stuff relates to one another. And, uh, you know, even though we draw a pretty firm separation in the West and especially in the U.S. national security community between cyber, the code, the ones and zeros, and the content, the information, there's really a lot of fusion there. uh, And a lot of countries see that as a very integrated space. Which is one of the reasons why, right, you look at 5G as a cyber issue. Right. All of these things have cyber components, and that's exactly the point. Um, right. We can talk all day about uh, the Belt and Road and uh, Huawei subsidies and 5G adoption in low resource countries. We also have to talk about some pretty basic cyber things like the fact that 5G is using a bunch of protocols from 4G that are still uh, you know, using garbage security, essentially. So um, at the end of the day, cyber is integrated through all of these different conversations. And, and so uh, in that spirit, right, uh, so going to uh, the uh, Ionov uh, issue, even if uh, Ionov has been identified, um, Justin, um, and, you know, in flag, right, I mean, he had an anti-globalization group, right, which has a lot of traction, both on the left as well as on the right. Um, ultimately, his messages and, and the, the, the seeds, uh, poisonous seeds that he's sown still exist. What are, what are the best strategies um, to, to try to undo this, uh, even if he's off the scene, because these narratives just continue and are washed, you know, right, wash, rinse, repeat, and, and they continue to persist and they continue to be toxic, which is what the Russians want. Then they want to, then they want to point to the United States and see, see how divided they are. Exactly. It's a really complex set of questions. As you said, uh, also, there's a long history of uh, the Soviet uh, union doing this kind of uh, activity, whether that's with you know the term active measures that was popularized in, in the Soviet Union in the 50s, or um, even going back to you know the Cheka in the 1920s was running disinformation campaigns. So uh, there's a long history of this kind of, of, of covert political warfare. Um, all to say, I think we obviously do not want, you know, we being the US, uh, Russia to do this kind of thing. Um, that also doesn't mean we should skip over saying, well, is it actually working or, you know, are we making Putin seem 50 feet tall or what, right? Because 
This operation you could look at, for example, uh, with great concern, which there are concerning things. You have an individual uh, who lives in Russia working with the FSB, funneling money to US political organizations. That is highly concerning uh, and clearly uh, against a number of um, you know, foreign funding laws associated with uh, the US system. At the same time, you could look at this and say, okay, so what did they accomplish? A couple people stood outside, maybe it was Facebook, maybe it was Twitter for an hour and shouted, uh, right? So like there's different, you know, as with all these operations, there's different ways of assessing success. And it's the same thing in the Soviet Union. You had campaigns like, uh, you know, Operation Infection to falsely propagate uh, the claim that the Pentagon started the AIDS epidemic, um, which had more reach. And then you had other operations the KGB ran in the US and Europe that kind of fell flat on their face. There was stuff to discredit Reagan and other things that really uh, got no traction. So um, what I would say is it's challenging when these divisions and fissures are here. It's easy for Moscow to push on them. But if we're trying to figure out what we need to counter, how much we need to counter, I think we should take a step back and start with asking, are these operations really effective or are we perhaps overstating, um, you know, what the Putin regime is able to accomplish. Are, are they, and uh, you mentioned the Uhuru movement, African People's Socialist Party, Black Hammer Party, uh, Cal Exit campaign, and Yes, California is among the groups that you guys, um, you know, were, you know, were, uh, that he was trying to influence. Um, and, and we do have some evidence that, that the Russian disinformation, certainly among African-Americans, you know, may have had some traction in, in, in terms of messaging, uh, right? So, I mean, people have a tendency of, of thinking it's, it's on one side as, as opposed to being on uh, p- potentially on both sides, right? I mean, if you're trying to sow discord, um, are these kind of operations successful? Because it would seem, you know, during the Cold War, the FBI would, you know, come and meet with editors, for example, in newspapers and say, hey, you know, by the way, your reporters' sources may be actually Russians and stuff. You know what I mean? It, it, the information mechanisms were not in the hands of some blogger somewhere who's got lots of followers who's writing this stuff from his basement, who's actually not who they might appear to be, uh, right? They may be completely synthetic, uh, ultimately. How, how successful are operations like this? Right, because because it's easy to dismiss them, or you know, they may not have been as successful in the Cold War, but they may be somewhat more successful now. How successful are they? Right, right. Yeah, I don't mean to dismiss. I mean, obviously, you know, again, the the direct funding piece is extremely concerning, and and um, you know, the fact that you have U.S. individuals who are willing to take money from not just a foreign national to fund a political organization, but to take money from if you Google Ayanov's name. Uh, before this indictment, it comes up that this is, you know, a pro-Kremlin think tank, um, you know, reportedly in the the Moscow office of this quote-unquote think tank, there is a thank you letter from Putin for all the, all the organization has done for uh, the Russian Federation. So, you know, it, it's obvious to see that there's a connection to the state here. Um, all to say, I think it, it completely varies, right? Uh, you know, the 2016 uh, interference operations, I think, were quite effective. There are studies looking at, did it change people's votes? And it's not clear, um, and things like that. But to me, if you look at the fact that the Russians, through the Internet Research Research Agency, spent a couple of hundred thousand dollars tops to have content reach millions of people and to precipitate uh, all of these questions about was the election fair? Was the election, you know, was, is it a 
election with integrity? Uh, you know, like how much did the Russians sway Americans thinking? Look at all the stuff Putin's doing, hybrid warfare, right? A lot of that stuff that happened as a result, I think, was quite effective for the Kremlin. So, um, you know, again, it's hard to say there's no one way to look at it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's definitely, as you said, an issue that has a long history. And there's no reason why uh, this is not going to persist, if not get worse in the next several years. Um, all Western governments are trying to fight Russian uh, disinformation, and I'm, I want to get uh, in a moment uh, to the role of private military contractors because uh, you and the Atlantic Council team uh, and, and Gavin wrote a great report uh, on, on the capabilities of military as, as well as sort of softer power. But all Western governments are trying to counter Russian disinformation narratives. We heard from Sash Tuso over the weekend, who is uh, with the independent equity research, research from agency partners in London. He's on our uh, regular business podcast every Sunday. And one of the things he said is, look, governments have simply not done as good of a job in Europe explaining your energy prices are high, not you know, because of inept politicians, uh, you know, domestically, but actually with Vladimir Putin. And in the U.S. context, you have a lot of GOP members who are saying, hey, you know, these gas prices are going up and it's all Joe Biden's fault as opposed to saying, well, I mean, it's actually Vladimir Putin's fault that, you know, a lot of this stuff uh, is is going up and whether it's on food prices or anything else. Um, you know, how how do you do this? Uh, ultimately, in terms of the information disinformation game? Again, if if you have which it which is from Russia's perspective, whether on one side or the other, useful idiots are willing to make your argument for you and then make arguments that, again, you point to and say, aha, see, they're fractious and divided. Why would you listen to them in a global context? God, they're hypocrites, right? So, I mean, how do you, right. how do, you know, have we gotten any better at figuring out how to do this when, you know, the, if, if you're a Republican, any narrative is a good one if it undermines, you know, the opposing party and vice versa? I mean, you can't really force people to think a particular thing necessarily, right? I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a psychologist, so someone might take issue with that statement. But to your point, you can do a lot as a democratic government, but there are some things you don't want to get into doing, like intensely controlling the media environment such that, for example, Tucker Carlson or some other, uh, you know, quote unquote, useful idiot, as the, the term goes, um, or someone who's doing it deliberately can't go on air or online and espouse uh, Kremlin propaganda about Ukraine or about anything else. That's just part of having uh, a society where there's free speech and where there's an open media environment. You're going to get people who um, say things that happen to overlap with what uh, you know a government like the Russian one says. You're going to get people who deliberately repeat those talking points. But I think uh, on the whole, uh, Western governments have done quite a good job during this war combating Russian narratives. I think the real-time intelligence disclosures leading up to the war and during the war have substantially uh, undermined the Kremlin's credibility on things like the pretext for invading uh, Ukraine, again, uh, undermining its claims about um, human rights abuses and war crimes, and as many are arguing, genocide in Ukraine. So uh, those kinds of rapid, pointed, unified statements of here is what the forces are doing in this area, for example, I think have been um, quite effective. Again, to your point, there are plenty of people who don't believe that. There are plenty of people uh, around the world in Brazil and India and other places who, who sort of disregard that. But um, but it's done at least a marginally better job, I think, than, than we had been doing before. 
Um, uh, speaking about uh, marginally uh, better job, uh, um, I, I don't know, that's not the right segue to this, but anyway, I think you get my point. Uh, last <laughs> month, uh, you and your colleagues uh, at the council, Emma Schroeder, uh, Trey uh, uh, Hare, uh, as well as Gavin, uh, who leads the, excuse me, I should say Trey Hare, who leads the cyber uh, statecraft initiative at the council, wrote a report, hackers, hoodies, uh, helmets, technology, and the changing face of Russian private military uh, contractors. You guys also wrote a piece uh, that appeared on Inkstick. I think yesterday, uh, dis discussing these, right? I mean, what, what are some of the key takeaways about how uh, the United States, its allies and partners, and indeed, increasingly the public, right? I mean, that's a messaging challenge right there, need to think about groups uh, like this and their capabilities. Every, uh, you know, couple months now, if, you, if you're reading the Russian news, there's a story to some extent about Russian private military companies, but these organizations have been around uh, for decades. And as we talk about in the paper, certainly you can go back, uh, you know, centuries to think about Moscow's use of mercenaries, whether it's the Cossacks in the Napoleonic Wars or, um, you know, uprising quelling under the Tsar Alexander. So this goes back a while, but under the Putin regime, you have a whole host of these companies that essentially outsource a range of military activities, both to the Russian government and to foreign uh, Putin-friendly regimes. This is groups like the Wagner Group, uh, which is the most infamous. This is also groups like Rubicon and RSB uh, and Enocorp that are less known. But what these firms do essentially is they have a bunch of usually former uh, Russian military or maybe former Russian special forces personnel, they will uh, act as a proxy force for the Russian government overseas. They will help seize Crimea in 2014. They will go to Syria to fight on behalf of the Assad regime and take back oil fields. Um, they'll provide bodyguard services to uh, the Venezuelan dictator, Nicolas Maduro. So there's a, a range of things they do, but it's all about, we are a group that will bring the firepower. We are a group that will bring, uh, you know, the, the covert kidnapping and assassination and other capabilities you need. Um, I'll just say the reason we wrote this, this paper was saying there's a growing component to this proxy warfare is these military groups uh, we start to see are using more cyber and tech capabilities to project Kremlin power as well. And, and so what is their role, for example, in political warfare, uh, cyber operations, uh, as well as offensive cyber uh, operations, right, that, that people have to bear in mind? Because you guys say, right, the advance of technology makes it easier for, do, for them to do everything from signals intelligence to unmanned and a whole bunch of other operations that we don't normally think of, you know, a private, I mean, when we think of private army, we think of Blackwater. Uh, and these guys are actually at a completely other, uh, you know, I mean, they're actually operationalizing the vision uh, that Eric Prince actually had some 20 years ago. Many of these PMCs, yes, are moving towards a full spectrum of, of political warfare capability. So as mentioned, there are PMCs who have gone into um, the Central African Republic or Mali or Syria or many other places around the world and kidnapped people, tortured people, uh, carried out assassinations. They'll fly drones to do reconnaissance. Um, they'll, you know, gather signals intelligence. They'll spread propaganda. So they really do a range of 
political warfare, uh, warfare activities, sometimes for Putin, sometimes for Assad or other uh, Russia-friendly dictators. Um, and then in, in, in cyber specifically, one of the PMCs called the RSB Group set up a cyber unit in 2016 focused on both defensive and offensive capabilities. Um, there are a couple other reports uh, slash rumor kind of things published about other PMCs using uh, information interception and other sort of tech cyber capabilities. Um, all to say our report is not some uh, definitive investigation into uh, anything new necessarily. It's saying, okay, the public unclassified information on PMCs is super limited anyway. But like you said, we see a trend towards more political warfare capabilities. We see a trend towards augmenting all spectrums of conflict for governments. And so as part of that, cyber and uh, disinformation and other capabilities are being built into those mercenary uh, toolkits. We have a tendency and laws of war are uh, aimed at uniform combatants, right? I mean, one of the gray areas um, that we got into in the wake of 9-11 was what is an enemy combatant? Do they wear a uniform? What uniform do they weigh? How do we classify them? And these legal questions preoccupied great minds in the nation. Um, you know, there were some that tried to simplify it. There were others maybe that tried to make it overly more complicated, but we are rules-based peoples. And so we created legal uh, justifications, even if some may want to poke holes in them. Um, Justin, how do we need, you know, in, in, in a battle space that in, information has always been part of that, right? But in a more fluid battle space where information is contested, the, ver the veracity of information is con contested, we're getting into deep fake territory, which is going to be another uh, entirely more complicating factor. How do we, I mean, do, do there need to be changes in law? Because the reason the Russians are doing this is to be able to say, no, Wagner, Orchestra, Rubicon, I have no idea what those guys are. Gee whiz, wish, wish we could help you. And, you know, it's, it, as absurd as that is, is what the Russians think they can accomplish with this, right? How, how, do we need to think differently about the laws of war even and how we're applying them? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not a, obviously not a, a lawyer, but it's an interesting set of questions right around this, this issue of deniability. Um, and the Kremlin uh, technically, on, you know, on paper, uh, has made PMCs illegal in Russia. It's, it's, it's been illegal for decades to run a mercenary outfit. Um, there's various reasons for this. You can go find interesting debates even among Russian intelligence organizations saying if we legalize this, that's actually an internal stability risk, et cetera, et cetera. But the Putin regime will tell someone like the Wagner group to go into Syria, to go into Ukraine in 2014, to kill people, to do all kinds of other things. And then, as you said, uh, basically, you know, wave their hands and say, oh, we have no idea who these people are and PMCs are illegal in Russia. And so how on earth could uh, our dear leader be behind any of this activity? And so... Um, increasingly, people are calling this implausible deniability because uh, now, at least in the national security field, people know who the Wagner Group is. Uh, there are some great journalistic and other efforts to publicly track Bellingcat and others, right? These groups as they move around the world. So the Kremlin doesn't really have as much of a deniable veil. Um, that said, there are still benefits. Uh, as you, to your point, in the West, we 
even if we, uh, you know, certainly do not, and we do not uh, follow all the laws and everything all the time and war still place more weight, much more weight on them than uh, other uh, governments, especially the Russian government. Uh, and so who is now blatantly carrying out war crimes in, in Ukraine, for example. So, you know, we're, it's a challenge because we want to stick by these rules and we also want to be able to combat this kind of proxy warfare. There was one case in 2018 in Syria where a bunch of uh, armed individuals were approaching uh, an area that was being guarded by U.S. special forces. Uh, they believed them to be Russian mercenaries in the Wagner group. Uh, the DOD actually radioed the Russian Ministry of Defense and said, you know, we're trying to do some deconfliction here. Your people are advancing on U.S. forces, turn them away. And quite interestingly, the Russian Ministry of Defense said, well, we don't know who these people are. Um, and so the reports are varied, but the U.S. Special Forces basically wiped out a significant percentage of these uh, believed to be Wagner forces uh, coming towards them uh, in Syria. And, you know, so you get these, you get a couple scenarios where the West uh, has directly confronted these groups, but a lot of the time, nothing's really been done. Um, I know that's not, answer, <laughs> that's not giving a clear answer right. to your question necessarily, but uh, I think it speaks to your point that there's a lot of hesitance about how to engage these groups that operate in a gray zone and that the, the Russian government claims zero uh, involvement with. Just have a couple of minutes left, but I want to ask you about the Twitter uh, whistleblower uh, and what do you think that means? You know, we've been following you. You've been, you've been on the program and discussed numerous times uh, the twists and turns as Congress on both sides of the aisle look to uh, change the governing regulations, right? I mean, the date from 1996 uh, or so on, on what the internet is and what these groups, social media groups are and what their role uh, is, uh, you know, big social media giants, I should say. What does this revelation ultimately tell us at a time when, you know, then you've got the drama of Elon Musk involved, right? And, and trying to buy Twitter. I mean, what, what does all of this mean, do you think now, Justin? It's a really interesting document. It's about 84 pages long, so it's uh, a bit to get through, but folks should definitely go check it out. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not uh, an expert on a lot of the you know, really technical sort of platform security stuff that, that uh, Mudge talks about in that complaint. Um, but there are, at a high level, some interesting things I think we should take away here. One is the fact that, uh, you know, Mudge obviously is one of the most uh, famous and well-respected hackers uh, in the world, I would say, um, and has been a security leader in a number of different organizations. And so when someone like this comes out with a complaint of this kind, uh, it's serious and it's very much worth giving a, a ton of credibility to. Um, on that point, it was interesting then that Twitter's sort of reaction to this was that he doesn't, uh, he was fired for what they called quote unquote poor performance, um, which, you know, frankly, I wondered who on earth was running Twitter's press shop and thought that was a, cre a credible uh, response to this kind of complaint. But I think speaks to the fact that, you know, it's a real challenge for folks in the cybersecurity professional community sometimes to go into companies and tell them things that they don't want to hear uh, and, and don't want to act on. Um, the other piece I'll bring up, which relates to our conversation on this episode is the allegation in there that four governments attempted or successfully planted uh, local employees within the organization as a means of exerting leverage on Twitter. So 
those countries in the complaint were Nigeria, India, Russia, and the last one, interestingly, was redacted. Um, I wonder if it's China. It could be many others. But, uh, you know, there are some things in there that actually- And there was an accusation at one point, right, that Saudi Arabia was also involved, right? So Yes, exactly, right, that that the Saudis had done this. So, you know, it's an interesting uh, set of questions then, too, back to the beginning of this conversation of human intelligence penetration. And um, yes, sometimes uh, an actual intelligence operative, like you mentioned, was the Saudi accusation has uh, infiltrated an organization. Sometimes, though, it's someone who is just a citizen that, uh, you know, the intelligence service puts pressure on or, you know, coerces into doing something. So, um, you know, we know that the Indian government has been putting pressure on Twitter. The Indian government has raided Twitter offices when they wouldn't delete, uh, you know, content that uh, the Indian government wanted. The Russian government has been even more aggressive, as we've talked about before, in actually sending men with guns into the Google office in Moscow and physically chasing people with FSB uh, cars and things like this. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question, I think, for tech companies broadly that, you know, you don't just have to think about that weird phishing email uh, that goes to your intern that, that uh, you know, puts the Chinese government in your network. You also have to think about who are we hiring, who's working with us as a contractor, how might uh, human intelligence uh, actors try and get into our organization? How do you think this plays into the broader uh, bipartisan move uh, to change, uh, it, to better and more closely govern the industry, right? I mean, some say there should be no limits on them. Uh, others, um, you know, like Facebook is saying, hey, you guys have to rewrite the law. It's the same law that we've had since 96. How do you think this all plays into this broader debate? Yeah, I mean, Facebook saying we need stronger privacy laws, like Exxon saying we need protections against drilling uh, in a forest. But, um, you know, nonetheless, I think there's been a lot of bipartisan interest in reigning in big tech, exactly to what you're saying. That's meant different things to different people. Um, There isn't even necessarily consensus within a party. Some Democrats want a really strong, big privacy bill. Some want to pass things along the way till we get there. Some Republicans want... Right, so there's a really wide range. Um, I think a lot of uh, members of Congress in this upcoming hearing will probably want to pile on Twitter, um, but the question remains, uh, you know, and we don't really know right now what will they want done out of that, uh, you know, hearing. Justin, as always, thanks very much for joining us. Always a pleasure having you on the program, and look forward to having you back on again soon. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me.